Uh, so, guys, I just got a, a news alert from the Washington Post that Sessions says he always told the truth in describing Russian contacts, but uh, now he remembers uh, this meeting with this low-level uh, Russian, uh, this low-level campaign <laughs> oh, staff. Something jogged his memory. Yeah, he seems to. Have, oh, like, that low-level aide. Right. Oh, the, the, the one, one who said who, he knew Putin. Right. It's coming back to me now. Yeah, because that was not the kind of thing that makes an impression. Yes. Under, See, when, when you asked me about happens. Russians, I thought you meant actual Russians, not right? Not aides who said they Greek knew Vladimir who, Putin. Yeah, who at a meeting I was to, at, like hang out with Putin. Now teams. we're on the same page. I remember perfectly. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the DMs on the DL edition. I'm Shane Harris, forgetful reporter, here in the Jungle Studio with my good friend Ben Wittes. Ben, you're never forgetful about Russians that you've met with. No, because I actually um, I keep a log. Uh, oh, it's a special of just Russians. It's a special book. It's it's it it, it says it the, the on the front of the book it says uh, to be given to Bob Mueller on request and it's just a list of oh, all good. my russian contacts do you have like an addendum in the back for people like george papadopoulos who are not themselves russian but no russians and want uh, to yeah there's a special section in the back for for people who uh are conduits to russians irrespective of their ethnicities yeah. and there's also a section for people who you know I don't know if they might be russian well, what uh, about people with russian first names like me Yeah, that's a really good question. Uh, you know, so you have not been included in in uh, in the book so far, but I'll have to add a Russian first name section. Um, and that Russian sounding first name belongs to our special guest today, Yasha Monk. Hi, Yasha. Hi. Uh, for those probably many listeners of the podcast know your work, uh, but Yasha is an author, a scholar, a lecturer at the Department of Government at Harvard University, and a podcast host himself of the podcast The Good Fight. Um, which people can download everywhere. Everywhere. And I'm very jealous of his jungle studio. Do you like the jungle? Yeah, it's nice, I right? do, because normally you sit around a table and everything is very serious. And this yeah. feels like we're just chatting. It's great. We keep it very loose and unserious on the show. <laughs> <laughs> so wait, we, we've got two missing bodies we do. in the room, though. So Tamara and Susan the... both are away. They're both away. So it's, among other things, this is the, the all-male edition yeah. of Rational Security. I thought this week maybe we should just call it the Men or Pigs edition. But then I felt like we'd be, like, confusing people as to what we were actually going <laughs> to yeah. talk about. Given given <laughs> current news events, I think we should probably stay away from jokes probably in that Probably stay away space. from that. Uh, well, this week on the podcast, we're going to talk about the FBI investigating an alleged kidnapping scheme involving ex-National Security Advisor Michael Flynn. The news you know. is so boring these days. I know. Can I, he, Michael Flynn, who was he? Pretty sure he met some Russians. Uh, Donald Trump Jr. was in direct contact with WikiLeaks during the 2016 campaign. Uh-oh. And Yasha is going to break down for us the breakdown in democracy. Uh, first, let's start with the FBI uh, investigation. This is a story that we broke last week uh, wait, in a little paper a minute, called The Wall Street Journal. Wait a minute. Stop this with the we, what? like there's some collective. Here. There's a collective we. Shame. There were three of us Shame. on this story. Uh, let's start this. You've been working on this story for freaking months. That's true. As has another partner with me on the story. Yeah, yeah. I just James want Grimaldi. I just want to say, like, like blow your own horn Listen, a little bit. Don't about blame this. this on me. <laughs> but, you know. So I just want to say Shane has been uh, Shane and his colleagues have been working on this story for a very long time. Uh it is not a you know, a, like a sudden 
data dump. This is one of those stories that took a lot of digging over a long period of time. There was some actual like investigative journalism that went on here. And so all of these things are things that Shane's not allowed to say about himself, but I am allowed to say uh, on his behalf. And he can just sit there smiling beatifically as he he does (laughs) in a kind of Buddha-like way and uh, nod maybe, which you can't see uh, from the podcast uh, world. But uh, yeah, congratulations, Shane. That Thanks, was it was, a, it was a it's an incredible story, and it's a uh, and it's really a, 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 it's hard to be shocked these days. <laughs> and yet, when you wake up in the morning, and the former national security advisor is under investigation for a suspected uh, kidnapping plot, um, and the special counsel is investigating that. Uh, you got to say that actually meets the threshold of shocking. Yeah, I think I think I'm I'm glad you said that, Ben. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> uh, for those who I think Ben kind of neatly summed up the, the just the story, but just to quickly recap for readers who may not have caught it, left out the fifteen million dollar part. Well, there was the, yeah, there was the part about where Flynn and his son are alleged to have uh, uh, been willing to do this extraction, if you want to use the military term of it, of Fatula Gulen who is this cleric that Turkey has been trying to get legally extradited back to the United States as well for some time now. They blame him for the uh, the failed coup a few summers ago. Uh, the allegation, as it was described as by people who are familiar with this plotting that went on, was that the Flynn's were going to be paid up to $15 million for this. Um, uh, the <clears throat> It's interesting. There's sort of two pieces to this story. One, we actually reported earlier, which was a meeting that took place in New York in a hotel room uh, during the UN General Assembly back in September 2016, where Mike Flynn was present with the son-in-law of President Erdogan and the Turkish foreign minister, and James Woolsey, the former CIA director, was there. And this idea of extracting Gulen by force, removing him, kidnapping him, came up as kind of a spitball talking out loud, wouldn't that be something, ha, ha, ha. And Woolsey is so freaked out by this that he alerts somebody who knows Vice President Biden and then eventually went public with the story with the journal. Um, Fast forward two months after that, there's a meeting in mid-December at the 21 Club, where I always go to discuss these things, uh, where Flynn is president with more Turkish individuals and the FBI is questioning at least we know four people about that meeting to find out the details of it, where this plan was allegedly discussed as more than just a speculative matter, we're told. Um, So, I mean... Ben, you've called it shocking. I mean, how what what do you think this does in terms of just the narrative of our understanding of the special counsel's investigation, particularly since this doesn't really involve Russians? Right. So the first interesting thing is that we've all we've all called this the Trump Russia thing, or as I call it, La Ferrus. Um, but now I think we probably have to ask whether there's also a La Fer Turk. Uh, going on. And, you know, so I do think it does, as a preliminary matter, we've already always known that there was a a, a, a Flynn-Turkey question. But I think we got to ask whether that's a, a really serious uh, tongue on this fork at this point. Uh, the second thing is, look, it really depends how serious this is. So what you guys reported is uh, that Flynn, that the FBI 
was interviewing people about this supposed meeting and these supposed discussions. Now, there's a big difference between interviewing people about it and being prepared to make uh, criminal allegations. And so one possibility is that the fundamental Flynn story is what it ever was uh, and that Flynn appears to have a lot of legal jeopardy, but it's mostly in the FARA context, the Foreign Agent Registration Act, in maybe false statements to the FBI, and it's a combination of sort of Turkey, Russia, uh, contacts, undisclosed sort of stuff. And that they've asked a few questions of a few people about this meeting. Another possibility, which I think the story really raises, is that there's a much more fundamental Flynn story and that the actual criminal investigation of Flynn involves dramatically more serious allegations than we understood. Uh, and that uh, when we see an indictment of Flynn, it is not simply going to be about Foreign Agents Registration Act or non-disclosure of material on his uh, SF-86 that he probably should have disclosed or certainly should have disclosed, that it's going to be something much more dramatic than that. And I think anytime you have FBI agents uh, interviewing people about a meeting at which a kidnapping was discussed. Uh, you have to, and and you have other news organizations, uh, NBC in particular, reporting that the Justice Department or the special counsel has enough in, in information to indict Flynn, and they are currently leaning on him to try to flip him. And if anytime that's the situation, you have to ask how much of this stuff is actually going to show up in whatever charging documents we end up seeing, assuming we do. Finally, uh, I just want to say that this puts the potential obstruction of justice issues with respect to the president in a potentially very different light, because it's one thing to ask your FBI director to back off of an investigation of your friend if you're just kind of if he's just kind of a uh, a guy you think is a good guy and you know he's lost his job and and that's bad enough and you know if the investigation was at that time a kidnapping investigation and the president asked the FBI director to back off a you know, an, inv a, a, an investigation of a plot to snatch a political dissident from Pennsylvania and ship him to an island prison in Turkey in exchange for $15 million, which is the hardest core version of, of the facts of your story. Uh, that would be a shocking matter of presidential conduct, not merely a shocking matter of the underlying investigation. So I think it changes the Flynn, the complexion of the Flynn investigation a lot. And it um, changes it in ways that we will not fully understand unless and until we see to what extent these allegations do or do not show up in whatever charging documents uh, or plea agreements uh, Flynn gets socked with. So I agree that it changes the sort of inflection of the Flynn investigation a lot. I think it also should change or remind us of the kinds of ways in which we should think about the Trump administration more broadly, right? So 
when you talk about La Ferruse, it's tempting to think about, first of all, just the personal connections that Trump happens to have to Russia because he used to do business there and because he hoped to have his hotels placed there and all of those kinds of things, right? So there's one way of telling the story where all of the complicated entanglements he seems to have of Russia just come out of his personal business background and the way in which it set him up for these contacts and so on, right? Then the second way of thinking about it is sort of about ideology, right? I mean, when I went to a protest in Dresden by the patriotic Europeans against the Islamization of the West, a far-right group that is angry at Merkel and refugees and, and Yasha, so on. And did you go there as a participant? Yes, naturally, <laughs> of course. No, I went there to report a story for Harper's about the refugee crisis and so on. Um, it's online, uh, available online. It's called Echt Deutsch. Um, but what I saw there was lots of Russian flags. And the reason is not that those people had business dealings with the Russians, but that there is a sort of ideological affinity of the far-right and especially sort of white nationalists in Russia who think of Russia as sort of uh, a good, uh, bizarrely Aryan for that's not what the Nazis would afford, um, sort of preserve of, you know, the white race and defense against immigration and sort of deviancy and all of those kinds of things, right? And I think both those two things have sort of been at the forefront in certain ways of how we thought about Trump and Russia. But, but Flynn and his weird entanglements with Turkey uh, should remind us that it's sort of two things that go far beyond that. Right. One of them is just a general openness to dictators. Right. That these are people who just do not stand on the side of democracy or the side of dictatorship. And they're very happy to have dealings with uh, the pro-Russian oligarchs in Ukraine, as Flynn has had. They're very happy to have close dealings and friendships with Russians like Vladimir Putin. And they're very willing to do that for Recep Erdogan as well, who's um, by the standards of a far-right white nationalist, not the right kind of person. He's Muslim, he's not white, and so on, right? But that doesn't matter because they're actually just like strongmen. Um, and the fourth thing is just that when you run an operation administration in which you welcome everybody in, no matter how shameless they are, no matter how obviously they, they are self-seeking and they just want money, you wind up with the kinds of people who you know are willing to discuss kidnapping plots. Yeah. So, so I think it, it it reminds us that some of the things that have been driving La Ferruse itself aren't just whatever entanglements Trump has had historically with Russia, aren't just sort of an ideological affinity. It is an openness to dictators, and it's just the the, the degree to which this administration is rife with utterly shameless people who are willing to do anything for a quick buck. Well, in this, I, I agree with you, Yash, and this makes me think also of, of when I have conversations with people who knew Michael Flynn or who worked with Michael Flynn, um, the man that they're seeing uh, giving this locker-up speech at the convention, going over to Russia and taking money to give a speech at the RT celebration while he criticizes American foreign policy you know, going to work for the Turks, uh, you know, em- embracing the, the the views of Erdogan, including, by the way, when he had previously given speeches that were critical of Erdogan before he was being right. paid half a million dollars uh, by an intermediary with, to represent Turkish interests. They are com- sort of puzzled by this. And one of the things in reporting the story I've begun to wonder is whether Michael Flynn being in like whether or not Michael Flynn was sort of already suited to this and nobody kind of saw this behavior and Trump being around Trump exacerbated or whether 
once he enters into the Flynn or to the Trump orbit, it kind of brings this piece out of it, but uh, of him. So it's a question of, you know, was he drawn to like-minded people or did it bring something already in him out? It's, it's something a lot of a question a lot of people I've talked to are asking because they don't recognize the person that they're seeing. So I've also had that experience of, you know, people who worked with Mike Flynn in Iraq, uh, in my experience, pretty uniformly describe him as a particularly fine intelligence officer in contrast to people who worked with him in the IC in Washington who uh, tend to regard him as, uh, depending on who you talk to, either kind of a bully or uh, a, a, a mediocrity or sometimes stark raving mad, depending on you know whom you're talking That's to. That's true. Um, uh, that said, I think we should say in Flynn's defense, uh, his lawyer, after the story came out, interestingly not in the story, but after the story came out, did issue a statement categorically denying the substantive allegations, didn't deny that the FBI was investigating right. them, uh, so actually didn't deny the story just denied the substance of the allegations that the story reports. And interestingly, use the word prejudicial to describe the reports, what I thought, which I thought was a very precise legal kind of term to put out there in a statement, which seemed to suggest that he felt that maybe law enforcement was leaking it. Uh, yeah, I also think it's probably hard to have a client uh, who... Um, presumably is being squeezed at this point by law enforcement, uh, who is a public figure of, you know, considerable, uh, having served at very high levels of government, who is being accused of something that we normally associate with, you know, mob activity or, uh, you know, something uh, you know, not the circles that he moves in don't usually do kidnapping plots. <laughs> and, and so I think there's, you know, probably a bit of cognitive dissonance going on for the client. Yeah. I, 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 I like to imagine this conversation, Flynn going to somebody for to, for advice to ask whether we should kidnap somebody. He said, well, I don't know if it's not quite the sort of thing that people who move in our circles usually do. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think that's part of what makes it... Um, a shocking story, right? I mean, you sort of, it's part of your vocabulary for the Trump administration that, okay, well, maybe they have foreign contacts that they didn't disclose. Uh, for example, uh, the attorney general. Um, and um, it's part of your vocabulary that maybe they're uh, a little too friendly with Russia. Like, for example, all of them. Um, <laughs> and... Um, but you do get into this one of these things is not like the other kind of Sesame Street thing <laughs> when, when they're like, it's okay, not disclosed foreign contacts, you know, too close to the Russians, shady business dealing, kidnapping, you know? Oh. <laughs> like, and, I, and I do think if you're I, – I do feel for the lawyer with a client who's like – Okay, we just really upped the ante on 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 what the what this game is about. Yeah. Okay. Well, we shall see. Perhaps when an indictment drops, which we're all <laughs> kind of sitting around waiting for these days. Um, let's move on to our second story. Uh, so, Julia Yaffe, friend of the podcast, uh, terrific journalist, had a I thought just a pretty kind of astounding piece last night 
uh, Monday night in the Atlantic, uh, where she obtained uh, copies of direct Twitter messages, Twitter DMs, that Donald Trump Jr. was having with WikiLeaks, uh, the WikiLeaks account, which I should say, having interacted with that account to some degree, there is a general presumption that Julian Assange is either on the account himself or is aware of what's being said through the DMs. Um, do, do we, just to clarify that, when WikiLeaks tweets something, I mean, Julian Assange does have a separate account. <clears throat> but does. do we do Is the assumption or the understanding that that account is an organizational account, like, for example, the Lawfare account, when somebody, when that account tweets, it it's, people don't associate that with me personally. Um, and shouldn't, because it's very seldom me personally. Uh, when the WikiLeaks account tweets, do you assume that that is Julian Assange personally, or do we assume that there is some organization called WikiLeaks that has a structure that manages that account? I assume that it's usually Julian Assange, or he knows what's being tweeted, that the infrastructure of managing that Twitter account is pretty thin. Okay. Yeah. But... The, 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 but just for point of clarification, yes, the Twitter exchanges were with the WikiLeaks account. Um, but this was clear. Whoever was typing these messages to Don Jr. Uh, clearly understood uh, uh, what WikiLeaks was about to do and what it was up to. Well, also, presumably, there's, there's a distinction depending on who you interact with, right? So the way that an institutional uh, account might work is that if it's, hey, our new podcast is out, or come to this event, then it might be a sort of more junior-level staffer who right. tweets that kind of thing because there's an understanding that you have implicit authorization from the person who ultimately runs the organization. But when it's, hey, let's reach out to the son of you know, the, the presidential candidate of the United States, and it doesn't seem like... And password to a, to a hacked account. Right, Correct. it doesn't seem like the sort of thing that a junior staffer just happens to do on an off no. day, Right. And this message specifically said, this is quoting, a PAC-run anti-Trump site, PutinTrump.org, is about to launch. The PAC is a recycled pro-Iraq, pro-Iraq war PAC. We have the guest, the password. It is Putin Trump. Uh, do you have any comments? So essentially providing them with information that they had uh, about this anti-Trump website and at other points trying to persuade the Trump campaign uh, to do things on their behalf uh, including at one point trying to persuade them that they should hand over Donald Trump's tax returns to WikiLeaks because if WikiLeaks puts it out there, it will be seen as more credible uh, than if the New York Times puts it out there, WikiLeaks argues, which is just going to savage the Trump the Trump campaign over it. Uh, and also at one point, in a sort of uh, a strange request, um, trying to persuade Trump that he should publicly say Julian Assange ought to be named Australia's ambassador to the United States. So some of it's a little bit kind of fanciful and silly. Some of it does seem a much little? more substantive. Well, okay, that's a little silly. Okay, more than silly. It's silly. You can say it's silly. Yeah, I'm going to say <laughs> uh, I'm going to say actually a little more than silly. It's egomaniacal <clears throat> yeah. crazy shit right. is the right. technical term right. for it. Well, and there's also and this... speaking of the Trump administration attracting shamelessness yeah. <laughs> and being willing to engage with shameless people. So the, there's what I think was probably one of the more also substantive exchanges. And we should say there's no evidence in these Twitter exchanges that they ever exchanged real information. You know, they did. You know, at one point. Uh, Donald Trump Jr. did ask, uh, following Roger Stone's tweet that Hillary Clinton was about to be finished, uh, asked Julian Assange or WikiLeaks, hey, what's this thing that's about to pop on your site? But at one point, um, 
Trump Jr. did promise to ask around about this anti-Trump site that WikiLeaks had alerted him to in September. So, I mean, the obviously meta point here is that WikiLeaks and the Trump campaign were in contact with one another. Um, there are emails that were also obtained that show that Donald Trump Jr. notified multiple senior campaign personnel that he was having this exchange, which then, of course, raises the question of, well, when did somebody tell the president or the candidate that they were in touch with WikiLeaks? Uh, presumably they did. We don't know the answer to that. And there is more than one occasion in which without responding on the account, on in the DMs, the Trump campaign and Trump, even Trump himself, tweeted things and took actions in close proximity, both temporally and thematically, to material that Julian Assange sent over this DM. And so... You, uh, uh, let's be frank about this. Julian Assange is understood by the U.S. intelligence community to be, uh, a, uh, cutout for Russian intelligence. And so I think it is not unreasonable to say that this is a, uh, a very clear and admitted example since Donald Trump Jr. tweeted the entire logs himself yesterday of the Trump campaign and Trump Jr. himself uh, in contact with a Russian agent or somebody operating on behalf of of Russia uh, in the context of the campaign and that person effectively tasking the campaign, including the president's own Twitter feed on at least one occasion. And so I think, you know, it's a good thing that there's no collusion and that, you know, these are all just, you know, innocent uh, communications of the type that every campaign has with foreign agents camped out in hostile embassies <laughs> in other countries. I, I accept that that happens all the time. But it is a... Per- now, Ben, who's being silly? It is a particularly stark example of it. Yeah, so I'm curious to me, what, what do you, when you read that there's this level of contact, there's nothing in the DMs themselves that suggests that it went anywhere. But do then you suspect, okay, but let's see emails, let's know about conversations that happened outside the DMs. I mean, does this seem like some sort of weird, innocent flirtation? Or does this suggest to you that there is something more, and we don't know, obviously, but more coordinated? And does this help explain why Trump then suddenly becomes so enamored of WikiLeaks? Or is that just Trump watching what WikiLeaks is doing and reacting to it. The main thing it makes me think is just, you know, which has been obvious for a very long time now, the degree to which Trump sees the world in terms of friends and enemies and and the way in which who's a friend and who's an enemy is determined exclusively by whether or not they're willing to do his bidding at any one particular moment. And so, you know, Trump Jr., gets these messengers from Assange and they say that they want to help Trump. And so he's like, well, let's play the field. Let's see what they can give us. And if it's useful to us, then obviously let's do it, right? Um, I think sort of whether or not they ended up colluding in a more formal uh, way or whether we'll find out that actually there's a long email chain between Julian Assange and Donald Trump himself somewhere, I think it depends sort of exclusively on how promising they thought this exchange was for the ability to win the election yeah. or make money out of it somehow. Yeah. Um, and and so in, in a weird way, I mean, legally and in terms of whether 
you know, what, what Bob Miller is going to be able to do in terms of indicting members of a Trump clan and all of those kinds of things, the question you asked is hugely important and impactful. But in terms of how we perceive the sitting president of the United States and his closest entourage, it actually isn't. I think we know no. the answer, which it is they're, they're very willing much, it, yeah. to do whatever would be helpful to them in collaboration with Julian Assange. And it may be that for various reasons, it never quite got to the point where they thought um, that Assange had information that was helpful enough to them or important enough to them that they actually collaborated in a more formal way. But But I don't think anything in... Trump Jr.'s initial response to a request for a meeting with Putin's aides, um, you know, I'm loving it, uh, anything in this sort of exchange to Assange indicates any amount of, you know what, let's tread carefully here, this person may not have the best interests of my country at heart. Right, and it also, I mean, it's also another data point. It's like yet another interaction that's going on, right? Which right. as these things build up, it starts to suggest, I mean, just objectively looking at it, that you're seeing a pattern here. That's emerging, right? And and one, I think, I mean, I presume Bob Mueller knows more than we do about this. But if any investigator were looking at the Trump Tower email, the statements that were made, uh, the um, uh, the statement that was crafted on Air Force One about the, the Trump earlier Army, interactions this, about Trump Tower Moscow, right? You would you would just look at this and say, you know, you would suspect that this is a very rich vein that you would want to tap and fully understand. So actually, I think you would ta- you would you would conclude something else, which I seem to be mentioning every week. And it's interesting to me that it doesn't catch on in a larger in the larger discussion. What you're seeing is a pattern of recruitment and penetration. This is the way a professional intelligence agency tries to probe the edges of a network. And they approach lots of different people and they figure out who they can do what sort of business with. And they do it directly, and they do it through intermediaries with whom they work. Uh, some of them may be London-based Maltese professors, for example. Some of them may run cut-out organizations and live for long periods of time in embassies and where they make limited use of the showers. Um, but there, there's a, you know... The, we did the, not need that visual. I have a visual of a shower or the visual of a non-shower. <laughs> um, but I, I think that, you know, the idea that what you're seeing in the pattern of these interactions with the larger Trump world by people representing directly or indirectly the intelligence services of the Russian Federation or the government of the Russian Federation, what you're seeing is a recruitment and penetration pattern. And... There comes a point in the spring of last year where having engaged in all these activities, the Russians make a judgment. This is a group of people we can work with. And they start dumping emails in support of that group of people. I don't think we're ever going to find the secret cigar-filled room where they say, and now we will all cooperate with one another. That's not the way these things happen. Right. That's right. Okay, um, Yasha. Yes. Now we're going to talk about your work. We're okay. going to talk about Yasha. Yasha <laughs> on the couch. Um, uh, your sort of big area that you've been writing a lot about and talking a lot about lately is this idea that you talk about of the deconsolidation of democracy. Yeah. So, for people who aren't familiar with this sort of the thesis that you're that kind of organizes how you come to a lot of these discussions that we've been having today, give us uh, kind of the the 
the elevator version of, you know, of what that is. And let's talk some more about the work that you've been doing in this space. How many floors? Ah, two floors. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, two floors. That's, uh, you know, actually, in very low buildings, often the elevator is much slower. <clears throat> so I'll take this. As an we'll take the stairs. All right. Good. Uh, look, I think the way to think about this is that for a very long time, political scientists have assumed that it's really hard to get to a democracy but even some very affluent countries um, don't necessarily transition to a democracy. You think Saudi Arabia or places like that. But once you have an affluent democracy, uh, a place where people have about $15,000 GDP per capita or more, and they've changed governments for free and fair elections a bunch of times, democracy is safe. And the, the word for it in the political science literature has been that there's a process of democratic consolidation, which is a one-way street. And once you have all of those things in place, you're consolidated, which basically means we know what's going to happen to the United States in the next 50 years, in the next 100 years. We know what's going to happen to Germany and France and Sweden in the next 50, 100 years politically. They're going to stay liberal democracies, right? And uh, I've been looking at that with a colleague, Roberto Foer, and, and, and basically finding that the reasons political scientists have for thinking that uh, are no longer in place. So democracy was supposed to be, quote-unquote, the only game in town because people are really supportive of democracy, because they really reject authoritarian alternatives to democracy, um, and because there's nobody who has real power within these political systems who violates the most basic democratic rules and norms um, that we play by. Now, in my work, I show that actually people give a lot less importance to living in a democracy than they used to. Mm -hmm. So, for example, in the United States... People born in the 1930s and 1940s, uh, over two-thirds of them say it's crucial to them to live in a democracy, 10 out of 10. Among millennials born since 1980, less than one-third do. In the United States, when you ask people, how do you think about straightforwardly authoritarian alternatives to democracy, like army rule? 20 years ago, one in 16 Americans fought army rule, that's a good system of government. Now about one in six do. And among young and affluent Americans, it's actually gone from 6 to 35% over the course of 20 years. And just as importantly, and this is really what we've been talking about all this episode and every other episode of a podcast that you guys do, um, you know, we didn't used to have people close to the center of power who plotted kidnapping people from American soil. We didn't used to have people close to the center of American power who were happy to carry on Twitter DM conversations with people like Julian Assange. We didn't used to have people at the power of government calling for the main political rivals to be prosecuted and all of those kinds of things. So the fact that we have elected somebody of whom that was known before he was elected mm -hmm. um, shows that the kind of surveys I look at aren't just abstract. Voters actually act on them. They are actually willing to vote for people who really challenge the most basic norms of global democracy. So and that's as true in lots of countries in Western Europe and so on where far-right populists have been rising over the last decades. So if you had to isolate then, I mean, and the statistics that you cite are startling in the way that the you know broad pieces of the population, their perception of what basic democratic values are seems to have shifted dramatically. I mean, in, in just one or two generations, which is like so a way of saying that Kids today don't think of the world, the country, the way that their grandparents did, and particularly a generation that you know fought through a war. 
I mean, what are the what are the factors that are making that happen? I mean, that's that's that is right the big question, I guess. Mm-hmm. But I mean, are there one or two things that you really isolate that say this is why people's views on this are changing so drastically? I mean, despite all of the indoctrination that we get in grade school about the Constitution and the greatness of our system, I mean, is it not taking? Yeah, so I it's think we got rid of beatings in grade school. We used to beat <laughs> democracy into people, and now you it can't, is a good beating. You can't hit the kids anymore when they don't believe in democracy, and that's really where the problem lies. I ignore that. Um, <laughs> we, don't well, I, I, we don't. We don't actually teach civics in the way we did. It's yeah. right? um, and and I know Bill Goldstein uh, here at Brookings does, does does a lot of has done a lot of work on that in the past, right? So so that is actually part of it. Perhaps not quite physically <laughs> part of it, but the you know intellectual force, corporeal. Um, but but look, I think that it's it's tempting to think of democracy as a political system uh, that people subscribe to for sort of deep ideological reasons, right? But we all have read mm. the Federalist Papers, and we're all high-minded people who believe in the ideals of liberal democracy. Now, I think there's more we can do to make sure that people believe in the ideals of liberal democracy and to remind people of their importance and to make the case for it in a way that people haven't. That's one of the things that I'm starting to do right now. Um, but really, I think the reason all along why a lot of people believe in democracy has been that it delivered for them. And I think they feel at the moment that it's not delivering for them. Mm. And so that's changing how they interact with it. Just one example, right? And there's cultural elements to it. There's the rise of social media. There's all of those other things as well. But take economics, right? From 1935 to 1960, the living standard of the average American doubled. From 1960 to 1985, it doubled. Since 1985, it's been flat. Mm. And so that changes how people think about politics. We never loved DC-based think tanks, let alone politicians. We never trusted them completely. We used to say, well, you know what? In the end, I'm twice as rich as my parents were. My kids are going to be twice as rich as me. Let's give them the benefit of a doubt. The system seems to be delivering for me. Now people say, you know what? I've worked hard all my life. I don't have much to show for it. My kids are going to be worse off than me. So am I allowed to swear on this podcast? Yeah, of course. So let's throw some shit against the wall and see what sticks. Yeah. Right? How bad could things get? Mm -hmm. So... Here's a question. Yes. Um, I don't know if I'm coining a term here or if this one's as old as 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 uh, democratic deconsolidation, but it seems to me there's a there's a. But democratic deconsolidation is one year old, so. Yeah. So <laughs> I, the, the, I, I want to raise the idea of democratic reconsolidation, right. um, which is if which is to the extent that you have either gone through some degree of a process of deconsolidation or that you fear the process of deconsolidation, uh, you might want to recommit your population or reconsolidate support for democratic values. And so I'm wondering what, uh, I assume some degree of civic education is a, is a function of that, some degree of uh, having podcasts like The Good Fight and, and, you know, doing a lot of the speaking work that you do. But what is a program in liberal democracy aimed at democratic reconsolidation look like? I think that's a crucial question. So, look, first of all, there might be And by the way, did the term, is that a term? No, I don't think that that people have... So I just made it up? You you just made it up, but I might claim it. I I, I think you should steal it and claim it as your own. I might have Um, to do that. Um, I'll put an asterisk. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, thank you. Um, uh, Look, I think some amount of democratic reconsolidation could be uh, natural. Right, so a lot of the people who didn't give the same importance to democracy because, uh, as you mentioned, 
Um, you know, they, they hadn't experienced the real threat of fascism or communism in their lives. They didn't quite understand what an alternative to it might look like. And as they're seeing authoritarian populist rise in the United States and other countries around the world, they might start to say, oh, well, hang on a second. Actually, you know, I don't want to elect the kind of person uh, who goes around and discusses kidnappings with members of our countries, right, in order to render the political opponents. I don't want to be ruled by someone like Erdogan. I don't want to be ruled by someone like Trump. And so perhaps I need to re-engage the importance of those basic democratic rules and norms and so on. Um, so far, we don't have much evidence of that happening. There's some new data coming out about public attitudes in the United States, and it hasn't really changed how people think about the importance of democracy and so on. But I think the worse Trump gets and the worse his administration gets, the more there will be a natural process of democratic reconsolidation, at least among a segment of the population. Mm. But we have to go far beyond the natural uh, process in order to push it. And I agree. Look, one thing is taking civic education seriously. And this is a matter, first of all, of of, of um, having a lot more hours of teaching civics in high schools and so on. It's also a matter of changing how we talk about our political system. When I talk to my faculty colleagues at Harvard, the idea that one of our goals pedagogically should be to get people to actually believe in the political system, to defend its ideals, is absolutely foreign to people. Hmm. They might want to teach the students to recognize injustice or to fight against the shortcomings of the system, all of which is good and important. But the idea that we should also actually fight to get them to believe in the system in the first place is bizarre. It's sort of gauche to think that, hmm. right? So that's one thing. But I think we also have to improve the functioning of democracy. We have to make sure that people's living standards actually improve, that we capture the gains of you know, new technologies and globalization, all of those things, and make sure that they actually go to ordinary people. And we have to f solve uh, the big debate that we're having about American identity, that European countries are having about their identity. How do we create an inclusive patriotism in which uh, we fight as hard as we can against all forms of discrimination, but we also emphasize what unites rather than what divides us across ethnic and religious and so on lines. Yes, just one, maybe one last question in this segment. But your data suggests that the political environment or the electorate was ripe and ready for a candidate like Trump, who was running a campaign, you know, about grievances, but also about saying, you know, we are living in a place in which you're not as well off as the previous generation, and your kids aren't going to be as well off as you. And it seems like that he is perfect for that moment. But why does he succeed? you know, particularly well where maybe more than Bernie Sanders or, you know, is, you, does your data suggest you have a theory on why it is that Trump's particular message, which seems right for the moment, is the one that ultimately prevailed? Yeah, I mean, I think part of it was that, well, I mean, in the end, right, Trump ran against Hillary Clinton. And I think um, one of the lessons I take from it is that an extremist vision of change will always triumph over a moderate vision of a status quo. I don't think that Americans are necessarily extremists. I don't think that they necessarily agree with everything that Trump promised. But I think they said, well, at least that guy tells me I vote for him. Things are really going to get better mm -hmm. for him. We're going to shake it up. And, and yeah. I don't know that I believe him particularly. I don't know that I believe his specific promises. But you know what? It's worth a shot. Whereas before the Hillary Clinton, they said, well, she seems basically to say that everything is already great. And that she has 17 technical fixes that are good for this or that or that group. But, but she's not even saying that voting for her is going to make my life better in any real way. So why bother? Right? And, and so I think what Democrats need to do 
uh, and what the opponents of authoritarian populists in other countries need to do. And I don't care whether on the center left or the center right. Um, I might p- care personally. I have a personal preference, but 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 saving the system can come from the center left or the center right. Um, what we need to do is to say, hey, we can actually make your life better. We have we're not comfortable with the status quo. There are things that aren't working very well at the moment that we have to change, but. We have a policy program that obviously respects basic democratic norms, that doesn't attack the rule of law, that respects the right of our political adversaries to organize freely, that respects the rights of a free press, and so on. Okay, uh, let's move on to object lessons. Ben, I think you have the sole object for the week, but I think it's a very good one. Yeah, so, you know, thanks to our listeners, uh, these remarkable array of packages keep showing up. (laughs) Uh, uh, It is like... Christmas all year round. It is like Christmas all year round. But with actual Christmas approaching, uh, uh, we got a very amusing package at the Lawfare post office box the other day. It was from uh, a fellow named Andrew who represents uh, a company called Nasty Wrap, uh, which uh, you can find – and I don't endorse products, but you can find at nastywrap.com to the extent that you want to. That's wrap with a W. D- wrap with a W. And a note that said, with the holidays just around the corner and the world feeling upside down, I thought your readers might appreciate a little pre-Christmas chuckle and a way to have some fun when gift giving comes around. It's a wrapping paper we call Make Christmas Great Again. And the wrapping paper, a picture of which is up on our show page, is uh, Trump-Putin wrapping paper. Um, it's adorable. It's, uh, it's adorable, and there's and uh, Putin looks uh, uh, very unhappy, and Trump looks quite gleeful. And so if you're feeling like your wrapping paper is not adequately uh, accounting for La Ferrousse, and you want to, uh, you know, spice up your gifts with a little Vladimir Putin uh, and Donald <laughs> Trump. Uh, I think uh, Andrew at Nasty Rap has got you covered. Uh, so, so to speak. <laughs> got you wrapped, as it says. So uh, thanks to Andrew for uh, for sending this along. And, you know, if you want a shout out to your gag products on Trump Putin stuff, <laughs> uh, just send them along because because we, we are we not, don't endorse, but we do solicit. Right. We're you know, we're not we're not we're not uh, doing me undies or, or, you know, stamps dot com or Casper mattresses or, you know, any of that stuff. Uh, you know, Blue a- Apron can go put it where the moon don't shine. Take your fresh box and wrap it in some Trump paper. <laughs> but send us a bottle of scotch or uh, or. or some wrapping paper and we're all yours i love it i love it uh well thank you can i can i add one object lesson yeah Yeah, by all means i I, ben and i had coffee before recording this podcast and he gave me my uh long-awaited baby cannon ah yes i just wanted to give that a shout out excellent uh (laughs) uh, so the that is the last of the uh long owed baby cannon pin deliveries uh uh, we have never been in the fulfillment business before, but we had uh, had to ship a lot of baby cannons to a lot of people. But I hung on to Yasha's to deliver by hand. You are like it's a Santa beautiful. Claus in your it own It is ride. beautiful. Well, that brings us to the end of the podcast. Rational Security is a production of Lawfare. You can find our show page still at SpaghettiOnTheWallProductions.com. Yeah, that's still, eventually we're going to change. Still that. hanging out there for now until we find a better. Maybe, well, maybe Nasty Rap wants to host, <laughs> host our show page. <laughs> 
You can follow us on Twitter at R-A-T-L Security. Send us your tweets there. Whenever you download the podcast, please make sure to leave a rating and a review. It's been great and really helping other people find the podcast. We really appreciate that. Our audio engineer this week is Matthew Kahn. Our show is produced and edited by Jen Patia. Music this week by Jeff Sessions and the Forget-Me-Nots. Nice. Yeah, I nice. Go see, I go see that band. Yeah. <clears throat> that sounds like a Christmas band, like, like they do holiday numbers. They're all dressed up in nasty rap. In nasty rap, exactly. Um, Sophia Yan, who actually does our music. Not a nasty rapper, at any rate. <laughs> on behalf of my friend Ben Wittes and our very special guest, Yasha Monk, we're delighted to have you here, Yasha. Thanks. Thank Hopefully you. you'll come back. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll consider it. <laughs> I'm Shane Harris. We'll talk to you next week. Thanks for listening. <laughs>